0: Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazilahickey.
1: And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Donnelly's interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, who is giving a talk on Gaza at the Sanctuary this Wednesday, December 6th. Then Elizabeth E.P. Press speaks with an organizer for Queers for Palestine, Jen Barkin. Later on, retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson talks with us about winter terms, dates, and our decidedly unwinter-like weather. After that, our producer Lavender shares snippets of her discussions with voters at the polls last month about why they vote and what it means for them to do so. Finally, Marsha Lazarus talks with singer-songwriter Ada Hetko about her work as a Yiddish culture maker and klezmer musician. But first, here are a few headlines.
0: The Community Loan Fund of the Capital Region has received a state grant of $800,000 to start the first phase of improvements at the new community-owned real estate investment in Albany's South End neighborhood. The commercial building at 153 South Pearl Street – known for years as the Albany Coliseum, provides affordable rental space for small retail businesses and services on the first and second floors. The third floor is rented to a church, and the fourth floor is used for local BOCES to teach
1: English as a sec- second language. On Tuesday, December 5th at 7 p.m., Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace are scheduled to sponsor a talk at the Bethlehem Public Library by Miko Pellid, an israeli-american human rights activist on what's next for palestine miko is the son of an israeli general who served in the 1967 war and the grandson of a signer of the israeli declaration of independence miko was a special forces red beret soldier in the israeli military however the library board is holding an emergency meeting on monday uh, that's today as i read this in response to individuals who are objecting to miko's appearance
0: City of Albany officials will gather Monday in Albany to start the demolition of the iconic Lincoln Park Pool in the city's south end. A new pool is expected to open in the summer of 2025.
1: The sure stay by Best Western is now just the Albany Airport Inn after the hotel and chain parted ways, in part because of its contract to house migrants.
0: The president of a small Catholic university in rural Pennsylvania has offered to provide special care to any students of the College of St. Rose who want to transfer there after St. Rose suddenly announced that it would be ending operations after the end of the spring semester. Many students feel that they were misled by college officials and say the last six months until school uh, shutters will be like purgatory, with many worrying about how well their credits will transfer to other schools. Many city officials are worried about the economic and community impact of the closing of the school and its nearly 200 buildings.
1: A bipartisan group of New York legislators are asking Governor Kokel to increase the minimum benefit of the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, to $100 across the state. The present minimum benefit for the program, formerly known as Food Stamps, is $23.
0: Climate scientists are finally admitting that the lack of action by the world's governments means that global warming will soar past the 1.5 degree Celsius target, threatening the future of life on the planet. World leaders gathered for COP28 are debating whether they they will finally call for a phase-out of the use of fossil fuels that's driving global warming. And that's
1: it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in,
0: you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding Capital Region through broad grassroots participation.
1: Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can join our team to contribute your time or talents or give financial support, see the donate button at mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call us five one eight. 272-2390.
0: Ahead of welcoming Chris Hedges back to the sanctuary this Wednesday, Mark Dunley recorded this interview.
2: Chris Hedges, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and former Middle East Bureau chief at the New York Times, will speak at the media sanctuary this Wednesday at 7 p.m. about the um, genocide in, in Gaza. You recently posted that phase one of Israel's genocidal campaign on Gaza has ended with phase two beginning and will result in even more higher levels of death and destruction. What is Israel trying to accomplish?
3: Well, this is part of the Hundred Year War, as the scholar Rashid Alidi calls it, uh, by a settler colonial project against the Palestinian people, against an indigenous people. So in terms of intent, nothing has changed since uh, the turn of the 20th century when uh, Jews comprised about 6% of historic Palestine. And then we saw uh, settlers, uh, particularly uh, after the Holocaust, uh, uh, populate Israel. and, uh, and we have had moments 1948, the Nakba or catastrophe when the state of Israel was founded and um, <clears throat> 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed into refugee camps, many of them into Gaza. Uh, and there were a series of massacres by Zionist militias. Then the 1967 war when about 250,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from historic Palestine and the remaining 22% of the land in Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem that was still occupied or controlled by the indigenous population were taken by uh, Israel. Now, uh, this has always been accompanied by a kind of slow motion, ethnic cleansing, a slow motion, a seizure of more and more land especially in east jerusalem uh, but also in the west bank uh, after the election of hamas in 2006 we saw gaza sealed off became the world's largest open-air prison uh, and uh, to periodically keep the palestinians in gaza subjugated israel launched periodic five or six military operations. Remember, these are operations against a population that does not have an army, a navy, an air force, mechanized units, uh, command and control. Um, it, it's really a misnomer to call it a war. Um, and then of course, we saw the events on October 7th when Hamas fighters and others broke through the security barrier that surrounds Gaza Uh, and kill uh, roughly uh, 250, 300 soldiers, along with civilians. I mean, clearly war crimes and atrocities were committed. uh, And this has given the Netanyahu government, which is the most extremist government in Israel's history, the green light uh, to do what it has always wanted to do. uh, And that is uh, carry out a campaign of massive ethnic cleansing. Uh, pushing the Palestinians, or destroying the infrastructure, making Gaza uninhabitable, and pushing the 2.3 million Palestinians, the ideally, over the border into the Sinai in Egypt. Now, Egypt and the Arab leaders, despite US pressure, have so far resisted uh, that uh, uh, call for them to accept uh palestinian refugees who we know of course would never return that's the plan and and as part of that plan we're seeing uh a pounding of gaza uh shelling of gaza destruction of gaza unlike anything we've seen uh in decades i I mean i was in the war in sarajevo i was based there for the new york times we were hit with three to four hundred shells a day Uh, that resulted in about four to five dead a day two dozen wounded a day and i don't want to minimize that experience almost 30 years later as i still have nightmares about it but you compare that with gaza where hundreds of people are being killed a day over 6000 children and it so gives we, you- we
2: we have limited time so let me get another question in uh hamas is often described as an offshoot of the muslim muslim brotherhood <laughs> And many say they were initially promoted by Israel and the United States government as a way to undercut the more secular and socialist leaning Yasser Arafat and the PLO. In its early years, it gained a lot of support among Palestinians providing social services. What is Hamas like today? What is this seeking to accomplish? And what is this level of support among the average Palestinian?
3: Well, it is quite, it is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, it, it was, uh, part of the israeli strategy to allow hamas to get support primarily from qatar uh, as a way of dividing the palestinian leadership this was Bibi netanyahu's strategy didn't work out too well uh what is their level of support um i think their support before this was always problematic i hadn't been in gaza for a few years so things could have changed but i think after this incursion and i just came back from qatar and from egypt the level of support not only among Palestinians because they are resisting, but throughout the Arab world is very high.
2: How can a less just peace be accomplished at this point among Palestinians and Israelis?
3: Well, at this point, the only solution is a one-state solution from the river to the sea. That means equal rights for all. The two-state solution is not viable. Number one, Gaza has been destroyed. It's, it's not livable, that's the intent. And number two, There's so much settler uh, and military occupation within the West Bank. Israel now controls about 60% of the West Bank. It's not viable. So, if there is going to be a lasting peace, it's going to be a secular state where everybody has equal rights Palestinians and Israelis.
2: Um, The the level of support for Palestinians, at least in my experience, is significantly higher than it's been in, in previous uh years especially among young people but uh you know certainly the Biden administration continues at least publicly to do you know carpline support you know for whatever the Israeli government is doing allegedly doing a little bit different behind the scenes how can the American people at this point change what the government is doing
3: we have to the Biden administration is a full partner in this genocide it knows very well what israel is doing that's why it constantly talks about what will happen afterwards its call for you know protecting civilians Bibi netanyahu says they're being careful not to target civilians um is uh they understand what the military strategy is and that's to make gaza uninhabitable and create a reign of terror to push people out Uh, and of course they've given them a supplemental military aid package of about $10 billion, or to get $3.8 billion a year uh, in military assistance. Uh, uh, so we've got to support the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction movement, just as we did in the campaign against the apartheid state of South Africa. That has to come uh, out of popular mobilization. We've seen that. Uh, I, we've been to several of the demonstrations. It's very heartening because they go—I went to a lot of the demonstrations against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they tended to be old; they skewed older. These skew younger, uh, both in terms of the crowd and the speakers, uh, and, and I think that uh, that is driven by two factors. One, uh, this generation, the younger generation, uh, understands how corrupt and compromised the mainstream media is. Uh, and uh, number two, I think they're much more sensitive to the nature of colonial settler projects and how they work.
2: So Chris Hedges will be speaking this uh, Wednesday. You can go to mediasanctuary.org uh, to, to um, reserve your tickets. You know, last comments in the, in the last minute, and do you have any optimism that this is actually going to produce any type of last in peace, or this, at some point, Israel stops, you know, the, the slaughter, but, you know, nothing really happens to improve the uh, situation for the Palestinians?
3: No, I, I think that I know Netanyahu and, and some of the figures who all come out of the Mariahana movement. He was this radical racist kind of Jewish fascist rabbi. No, their goal, and they've been quite uh, upfront about it for years, is at cleansing, I think, when they finish with Gaza, they will try and turn on the West Bank, which is why the Jordanian army has moved its armed forces up along the border uh, between Israel and the West Bank to prevent that from happening.
2: Well, thank you very much. Uh, Chris, if people want to read more of your stuff, you have a web page people can look at?
3: It's all, everything comes out at chrishedges.substack.com.
2: Uh, And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine.
1: Chris Hedges, as Mark said, will visit the sanctuary this Wednesday, December 6th at 7 p.m. You can register for the event at our website, mediasanctuary.org.
0: Staying on the topic, pro-Palestine activists continue to call for a permanent ceasefire. In Albany, New York, an ad hoc group called Queers for Palestine protested outside an LGBTQ fundraiser. Elizabeth E-T- EP Press spoke to one of the organizers, Jen Barkin.
4: I'm joined by Jen Barkin, one of the organizers of the newly formed group Queers for Palestine, who protested in front of an event, LGBTQ families and friends and celebrating november as national adoption month in support of congressman paul tonko jen is here to talk to us about queers for palestine and what happened at that protest jen welcome to the hudson mohawk magazine
5: thank you happy to be here
4: what is this group queers for palestine
5: a very unofficial grouping of us it came together I guess a week before the this Tonko action, some of us were on a call with the Capital Region Ceasefire Coalition, which is a grouping of organizations and individuals who've been organizing to push for a ceasefire in Gaza over these many horrible weeks. And we, in that meeting, were looking for events where we might be able to find Tonko at home in the district because it was the week of the federal holiday of Thanksgiving and, you know, the Congress people were home in the districts. And so several of us on the call who identify as queer stepped up and said, hey, we will organize something for this event, LGBT Democrats fundraiser for his campaign.
4: Jen, this is not the first event where the message was to call for a permanent ceasefire directed at Congressman Paul Tonko. There was a die-in in front of his offices. Why target Congressman Paul Tonko?
5: Right, so Tonko is the member of Congress who represents Albany and Troy and some of the surrounding areas. And we have been pushing the entire time for him to sign on to the resolution that Cori Bush has put forward, House Resolution 786, to call for immediate de-escalation and ceasefire and humanitarian aid. And that over the last month and a half, um, a number of Congress members have signed on to and Paul Tonko had not. And only very, very recently, right before the temporary pause took place, he made some very vague statements sort of saying he was supportive of a process to possibly have a pause. And then basically during the ceasefire, or maybe right before it started, made again some slightly stronger, but still just his own personal statement about, you know, supporting There being a pause and and wanting some aid, but we really said, this isn't what we're asking of you. We are asking you to sign on this to this resolution to join your colleagues in Congress in this shared message to the presidential administration, to the secretary of state, to ask them to demand that they do everything in their power to stop this terrible atrocity, to stop the genocide and his statements have not been strong enough. And so we've promised, you know, as a coalition and to not back down to keep, you know, many of us have been calling his office every day for a month and a half, as well as being out in the streets at the action you mentioned and and others. Um, And this was just one more way that we thought we could um, actually, you know, we hadn't seen him in person because he's been in DC, but this was a way we thought we might have a chance to actually see him here in Albany and, and bring our message right to his face.
4: So on Monday, November twenty-seventh, this ad hoc group, Queers for Palestine, gathered in front of this event, hoping to catch Tonko going in. Was is that the was that the yeah, objective?
5: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we hope to sort of use a, a tactic known as bird dogging to sort of catch him on the street. We had one of our members of our group who is a queer Palestinian American, was prepared to um, approach him and address him and, and ask him why he hasn't signed onto the resolution, and will he do that? Equally with that, we knew that members of the local LGBT community, folks who have the funds to donate to him, you know, $50 ahead and more for this event, were going to be there as well, and we'd be seeing them. So we had prepared a handout to give them that we got some great material for, from a No Pride and Apartheid campaign that had been put out by the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights and had some information about, you know, the importance of queer people being in solidarity with the people of Palestine, queer Palestinians and the rest of the Palestinian uh, community. And so we aimed to be able to interact with those folks, to encourage them as individuals to support the Palestinian cause, to support ceasefire, And with the ear of Tonko inside the event to give voice to the same message we were there to give voice to, which is that we were wanting him to push for a permanent ceasefire, nothing less. And to really beyond that, you know, to end military aid to Israel, to end the occupation and to do whatever is necessary to rebuild what's been destroyed in Gaza.
4: I was just wondering as a follow up to that, why have this Like affinity group of queers within the greater movement of people calling for a permanent ceasefire.
5: So it's actually a really long-held movement of queer people organizing in solidarity with Palestine. There's a group, Queers Undermining Israeli Terrorism, quit out of San Francisco area that's been around for many decades. For me, for many others, you know, being queer is a political identity as much as it is related to sexuality and gender. And it means that none of us are free until all of us are free. So this is standing with the people of Gaza, standing with the people of the West Bank, the people of Palestine in Palestine and in diaspora is kind of a no brainer for many of us that it's obvious to us that their freedom is our freedom. And then, you know, more specifically, we see in the state of Israel actually engages in what's known as pinkwashing. So they hold up this idea that here in Israel, gay people have rights. Here's the rainbow flag. Here's a rainbow flag held by our people in our military. It's okay for us to bomb the people of Gaza because Palestinians don't, have, you know, there's no rights for gay people there. Gay people are victims of violence. You know, queer people don't have rights there. So we're your allies here as this fantasy land for, for gay rights. But it's really, it's another, you know, the Israel, Israeli government has a lot of nuanced and, and powerful messaging to support the Zionist mission of holding up this land that they've claimed for the last 70 odd years. And it's, you know, it's one, it's not accurate that gay and queer people in Israel, you know, have all possible rights, um, you know, that certainly isn't true for gay and queer people of color in Israel, which there are uh, many. It's not true for gay and queer people other than Jews, don't have the same rights as others. And of course, it's just total nonsense that that's a reason to obliterate another people who are indigenous to that land. And so it's that term pinkwashing that comes from, you know, greenwashing, whitewashing, these other strategies that people at institutions in power use to justify their oppressive actions. So yes, we were there um, making known that, you know, we, we weren't going to accept those pinkwashing messages. We know that it's It's not a valid justification for what Israel has done, murdering now at least 15,000 people in Gaza. We don't know how many because they're buried under rubble. We had a few days of pause. Literally, the Israeli prime minister and and military leaders promised that the bombardment would continue. And it has as of this time of this recording. So we we aren't done.
4: Uh, Just to wrap up on the action itself, your group, for Palestine did not actually get to confront Congressman Paul Tonko on the night of your action. But do you know if the message got to him?
5: Yeah, so we had hoped to see him, you know, we didn't know what time he was going to be there. So we were out there for an hour at the beginning of the event, interacted with a number of attendees, including folks known to some of the protesters and had both positive and more confrontational interactions with them we did not see Paul Tonko go in we didn't know for sure at the time if was there we did learn the next day through you know one of those interactions on the street outside someone in our group had connected with someone they knew going in and that person followed up with them and said hey you know actually Paul Tonko was in there and he did know you were out there he did know the message that you were stating And I think that was important for a lot of us to hear. You know, we didn't get to see him face to face, but he knew we were right outside the building and that we, the same people who, again, have been calling his office daily have held die-ins in front of his office, multiple rallies in Albany and around his district, that we were right there, not letting him have a day where he's not confronted with the realities of what his inaction is complicit with, which is using our tactics. Dollars, you know, our tax dollars are paying for most of the, the military might of Israel. That's the reason, you know, really that our Congress has the power to, you know, stop those funds and influence the decisions of the Israeli leaders. And we're not stopping targeting him until he makes a clear statement that enough is enough.
1: That was Elizabeth E.P. Press speaking with Jen Barkin, one of the local organizers for the group Queers for Palestine.
0: For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila
1: Hickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, plus streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes for the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York.
0: And now... Joining us once again is retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson for our weekly discussion of climate and weather. Welcome back, Hugh.
6: Howdy. How are you doing?
0: Great. Glad to have you here. Excellent. So I think most of us would characterize December as a winter month, but officially it only begins on December 21st. Can you tell us what is the difference between an astronomical and meteorological winter?
6: Well, very good question, Sina. So the difference is that astronomical winter is when the sun has reached the tropic of Capricorn, lowest place in the sky on December 21st, sometimes the 22nd. It's not, it's our shortest day, but it's not our earliest sunset. Believe it or not, we'll start gaining light in the evening in less than a week because of the skew of the Earth. On the other hand, we'll still lose a little bit in the morning. But back to meteorological winter, that's generally speaking uh, December, January, February, uh, the the coldest average of the year. Although with climate change, that has skewed a little bit. We actually are a little, it's about a week off. We actually It's more like December 7th to March 6th is our coldest time now. It's, It's skewed a little bit, you know, part of the climate change. So, yeah, that's it. I, I go with the
1: meteorological winter because I'm a meteorologist. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Hugh. This is Bria. Uh, that hey, Brea. meteorological definition makes more sense to me than the December 21st one. How do our recent winters, using whichever definition you use, compare to years past?
6: Oh, they're getting warmer. Uh, in fact, winter is our most rapidly warming season. And get this, we've already, we've averaged uh, over six degrees warmer now than we did have 50 years ago, or, or winters. Uh, December, I believe, is the mildest month. February, the least mildest. But they're all running away, but mostly in the lows. The lows are the ones that are really, the overnight lows have, have warm more than the uh, daytime highs. but. And we've had, we have 13, our average lowest temperature of the winter is now 13 degrees less cold than it was 50 years ago. Uh, 1970, I think we had 16 days below zero. We usually average less than 10 days below zero and very few days, below, uh, 10 below zero. The last time you've been 20 below zero, you probably don't know this, January 23rd,
7: 1994.
0: Hmm. Huh. And so the changes throughout time don't really happen linearly. Uh, I assume like a graph chart, you know, you see like a plateau and then a spikes. Mm -hmm. So when were some of these um, significant changes? Were there certain time periods where we saw like a real drastic change from year to year and then other times a little more subtle?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Last 10 years. I mean, again, the inflection of the earth is warming at a faster rate. We've talked about this, the CO2 uh, in the air. And, and anyway, yeah, we're warming very rapidly in the last 10 years. I, I've seen the difference. I really have. And since, certainly since I've moved here, I've seen the winter. It's getting milder. Absolutely. Now, the snow is not going down that much. We've only knocked off a couple inches in our average seasonal snowfall. Why? Because even though we're getting milder, we're getting wetter and more precipitation falling. And some of that, of course, is you know, still a good chunk of that is still theoretically snow. Oh, <clears throat>
1: we might think how lovely that the winters are milder, but the ecosystem in this area, the bugs, the birds, the trees, is designed for cold winters. How do these milder winters impact our ecosystem?
6: Oh, big time, big time, uh, Bria. I personally like the mild winters, but I don't ski, and I'm not a, I'm a cold wimp, and I admit it. But yeah, there's huge ramifications. Actually, let's start with the ski industry, a $20 billion across the country ski industry. So in in the West, they've actually been getting less snow than we have because they've been drier and and a little bit milder, 41% less snow. And they have actually seen some, some drop in real estate values near um, homes, near ski resorts and things like that. Uh, And in the East, the problem is, you know, we get still get a close to the same amount of snow. The seasons are shorter and we get more erratic temperature changes in between. Now, Thanks to snowmaking, if it weren't for snowmaking, a lot of ski resorts would be dead on arrival. But because of ski, uh, a snow resort, uh, the snowmaking it, it it helped them to they they can work through the times where we warm up and, and lose snow, and they can rebuild it again. But that is taking a huge toll. Now, when it comes to the um, environment, yeah, insects we're going to see more mosquitoes because they're not dying off as much. More and, and a lot of different changes in bird. Birds are migrating differently uh and there's going to be some real ramifications now on one side you say the farming is we got less so we get a little longer farming here that's good but we still get those cold snaps that can really hurt the crop like it did a couple of years ago but anyways it's huge i mean there's we could spend hours talking about the ramifications it's not good though that there could be a lot of big changes um of course not to mention snow removal that's a big um an upstate new york a big uh industry. So a lot of changes in these industries due to climate change.
0: Well, you mentioned the longer crop season, but doesn't also the earth need to freeze for the types of crops that grow in this environment for it to be uh, successful?
6: Probably. I, I don't have a, I would think so. Yes, definitely. There's, and there's certainly uh, some that really do require the, a longer frost or frozen ground. So absolutely. But I don't have a number on that, but I would say it's, it's all changing and it's changing quite fast. And
1: when you mentioned the increase in snowmaking because of the lack of natural snow, I think I read yeah. someplace that that has its own impact on environmental change.
6: Absolutely. Because I think they're, I they're need to read more- up on that. Yeah. Oh, I agree. No, more CO2, they, they know, electricity. Some of them are trying to go solar out west where they have more sun. It would be hard to do that, I think, in the east with the lack of sunlight to get more. By the way, New York State is the third highest ski industry state. I, I was surprised it actually beats out Utah and Vermont, I guess. But it's California, Colorado, and New York State are the three big ski industry states.
0: And I just want to recap. You were saying that there's been less and less snow in the west of the U.S. because mm-hmm. it's getting drier and drier?
6: Correct. correct. That is correct. Now, last winter we had an exception. Last year they got slammed. Uh, and, and, again, it was kind of unusual because it was not El Nino, and uh, that was a little unusual, but for the overall trend, absolutely.
0: Speaking of El Nino, how is it looking? What's going on and how is it influencing our weather?
6: Very good question. And it's now officially a strong El Nino. It's more than two. just The Pacific waters near the equator are averaging over 2.7 degrees above normal, making it a, a strong El Nino. It has a chance to become a super El Nino, it's still not quite as strong as the 2015-16. Now remember, El Nino means Christ child. That's what it means in Spanish. And it generally, that's because it generally peaks right around Christmas. So in about three weeks, we'll probably see our strongest So, I, I'm guessing it won't be quite as strong as the 15-16 one, but there's something else going on in the Pacific, folks. There's another warm blob that's well north and west of the El Nino that seems to be competing with the El Nino for producing it's kind of messing up the whole normal schematic pattern of the El Nino where you have the strong descent in the west and the Eastern Pacific and ascent in the Eastern Pacific bringing rain to California. It's going North. It's going towards the Northwest and the same thing happened in 2015, 16 where Southern California missed most of the rain that El Nino season. And it went North and that seems to be happening again this year. What does this mean for everybody? Well, I think it could mean a so little I'm gonna, bit an impact. i oh, sorry. We go ahead.
1: Going to swing you from the California weather to our weather, and it seems like you were just about to say your forecast for the week ahead.
6: I was, and uh, first, of, first of all, there are no, there's no um, potential for any big snowstorms in the next ten days. I don't see any at all. What I see is chilly weather the next couple of days, and then it's going to warm up big time on the weekend. In fact, Sunday, Monday, we might get new record highs. But we're going to have rain, too, and we could have thunderstorms, believe it or not. Then it turns a bit cooler, but not super cold next week. So we're all up and down, but we're starting to trend to a mild December. And most El Ninos, strong El Ninos, uh, we have warm Decembers. And there was some in- indications it might start out, it Wonderful. Did start out cold, but now now it's starting to get warmer.
0: Well, thank you so much, Hugh. It's always a pleasure to have your insight on our climate right. and our weather. Looking forward to speaking next evening. week. All right. Thanks, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Okay, and Lavender took us to the polls again this November to get some more perspectives for her Dear World series, which seeks to bring awareness to what people want from the world. This segment even features interviews from two poll workers giving us an insight into the polls themselves. Did you vote today?
2: I did.
8: And why Why did
1: you vote?
7: There was a vote, library vote.
8: Why was that important for you? Yeah.
7: They wanted more money in the budget. Might as well give it to them.
8: Okay. And if you're comfortable, could you share some demographic information about yourself?
3: White. Mid-20s.
8: Thank you. Yeah. Why did you vote?
3: Uh, because I'm tired of all the corruption in the system. So, every vote counts.
8: Because I want to see changes.
9: Because I think it's important to keep an eye on the small elections as much as the big ones. And... If you don't make an effort to learn about what's going on, then you won't know
8: what's going on. What things are going on that matter to you?
9: I think, in general, it's good to just keep an eye on how things are trending. And um, it's not about one specific issue, it's more so, you know, making sure that the government is serving the community in a positive way and that people. Have their needs met, and, you know, the government's a positive force on the people. What issues are important to you?
3: Um, A lot of stuff. Inflation, taxes.
8: Uh, Inflation. You know, uh, terrorism. In general, what do you wish more people would consider or do more often? Go to therapy.
3: Just do the right thing, you know what I mean? Just stop all the corruption and do for the country, you know. Um, vote,
5: because I heard on the news this morning that one in three women, just one in three women um, vote. And it's a shame because, um, you know, how, how, like they, I, they, I think they said that people are afraid. Like, well, People aren't afraid. They're, they think that their vote's not going to make a difference, you know. So I think that people should get out and vote.
8: And finally, if you're comfortable sharing, could you tell me some demographic information about yourself? I'm 24.
9: I identify as female. I am cisgender. I'm bisexual. I am white, Caucasian. I live in upstate New York.
3: Yeah, I'm a male, 53, uh, race, white.
9: (laughs) Sure. So I am a white
5: female, um, married, um, 50
8: to 60 years old. So why are you going to vote? Because I think it is important for us
10: to get involved yeah, in our I community our and, <laughs> yeah, I the, right. yeah. the, the right to vote.
6: Uh, just to make sure I have a voice.
10: Because I like to the democracy, you know, I like to vote for the country and to uh, put my rights out.
3: Uh, because we need to make some changes around here.
10: You know, I feel like... Um, I don't
11: know if it's gonna make a difference, but if it does, I I gotta I, I gotta make my voice heard locally. Yeah. I think I'm in the minority, so I, I feel like I gotta show up. And why do you feel like that? You know, um a lot of my neighbors are let's just say red voters and I'm not and I just feel like I gotta represent and
8: not be intimidated to come down and vote. What issues uh matter to you? Uh, the United States is going to a very difficult place, and uh, what matters is that everybody gets represented. That what needs to be met.
6: Uh, right now, issues are the economy, and um, that's really the main issue right now is the economy.
10: Well, a lot of the issues are important more, like school, public school, budgets, and stuff like that, city budgets.
3: Just like taxes, social programs, um, all that type of stuff, so.
11: I just, I really worry about discrimination. (laughs) I worry about discrimination, I worry about school funding, I worry about, I just fear the other side. So I guess, I don't know, I just feel even locally that I need to represent and make sure that everybody's voice is heard.
8: Okay, broadly speaking, what do you wish more people would consider or do more often? Engage in civil discourse, ask how their neighbor's doing,
11: um, be open to listening to the other side.
2: They should go out and vote, because a lot of people don't vote. And
8: Thank get you. to know who are your representative, you,
2: who represents you. People want changes, but you have to exercise your right to vote if you want changes.
8: What do you wish more people would consider or do more often in life?
2: Uh, probably take care of other people.
10: Yeah, I just wish people were more more kind and help each other a little bit more.
3: I guess just more people would pay attention to what's going on everywhere else. Um, you know, kind of just make the right decisions for the better good of everybody rather than just themselves.
8: And then finally, if you're comfortable, would you mind sharing some demographic information about yourself, such as age, race, sexuality, et cetera? Sure, um, I'm
11: 47, weight i um, cisgender, female, Democrat.
2: 60, from the Dominican Republic. Born and raised there. Now I came to the US when I was 18.
8: Same thing, 60 years old, Dominican Republic.
6: Uh, I'm 69 and uh, married with three kids and been in the area for my entire life.
10: I'm 42. My background is Colombian. I'm Spanish. and. Uh, You know, I've been here for 22 years.
3: Male, 26, um, white.
10: Okay, so uh, what do you do here? What is your role?
12: I'm the chairperson for the Stormville Firehouse poll site. Basically, my job here is to, along with being one of the intake inspectors, just checking voters in, you know, making sure their information matches, signature matches, and verifying who they are. Uh, As the chairperson, my job is basically to oversee any problem that we encounter and work my hardest to resolve it. Do you vote? Of course I do. I voted in every election ever since I was eligible at age eighteen.
8: And how does it how does that work for someone who works as a poll worker? How does voting work for, for them?
12: For us, when the when you go through the training courses they tell you that you need to vote early, uh, you need to which is about I think it's ten days could be more in New York of early voting. Uh, they give you a bunch of different locations all throughout your uh, county. Go to any of those sites on any of the designated days of the week during the time frames they offer. It's pretty flexible, thank goodness. And uh, you vote early, and so you don't have to you know, make time to vote the day of, so you can put all your energy to you know, taking in voters at whatever poll site you're working.
8: Got it. Makes sense. Um, great. And then, if you're comfortable, would you mind sharing some demographic information about yourself, such as age, race, gender, sexuality? Sure.
12: Of uh, my name is Kevin Carroll. I'm a white man. I'm 26 years old, and college educated. Got two bachelor's degrees. Uh, anything else there? Is
8: um, that good? Enough? Whatever you're comfortable sharing. So that's good.
10: Um, so, what is your role here at this polling site? Okay. So, at this polling site, I'm what they call a poll print inspector and that's basically after uh, the person comes and registers. Then they bring their receipt over to my machine, which talks with that machine. I print out the ballot. I explain to them how to navigate through the ballot, and then I send them into the booth to make their selections and then on to the actual, into the voting machine.
8: And how did you get involved? How did you start doing this?
10: Well, I've been doing it for years. Um, I first started out in Westchester County, where I'm from. Um, I just wanted to give back to my community and I'm all for voting, you know, and kind of like social action and, you know, politicalness. So I started there and then I moved up here and um, I continued so I could give back in my new community. Plus, um, my sorority is very into uh, the political, social justice, so I do it to represent them as well.
8: Got it. Um, What is something that people might not know about working at the polls? Mm,
10: It's very rewarding. You get to meet a lot of different people um, from a lot of different aspects of life, and you can actually explain, you can have an input into explaining uh, the voting process and how important it is to vote to have your voice counted. Gotcha. Um, and so do you vote? I most certainly do, and I encourage my kids to vote and anybody else that I can.
8: Um, and what is it like voting as someone who works at the polls?
10: Um, well, you just want to set an example. First and foremost, you can't tell people to do something you're not doing. So if people show, see that you're upfront and present, then when you talk to them about it, it's better best received.
8: In, in general, what do you wish people would do more often or consider more often?
10: Exercise their rights.
8: And then finally, if you're comfortable, could you tell me some demographic information about yourself, such as age, race, gender, sexuality, etc.?
10: African American. I identify as female. I'm married. I'm 58 years old, retired law enforcement. Oh. Huh. hmm Do you want to say more on that? Uh, I'm a retired parole officer of 33 years. And um, I ran the streets to keep them safe for the community.
8: So it seems your your passion is in in this government kind of role
10: for the community. Mm-hmm. I like to give back to the community, on both ends. I did it on a law enforcement end, locking people up. Now I'm doing it on the on another spectrum. So,
8: got it. Anything else you'd like to add?
0: Nope. vote. <laughs> All right. You can hear more Dear World segments by Lavender at mediasanctuary.org.
1: And for our final story, as part of our lead-up to Hanukkah, producer Marsha Lazarus talks with singer-songwriter Ada Hetko about Ada's klezmer music, her love of the Yiddish language, and how she uses both to build community and a positive Jewish identity. Here's part one of their interview.
7: Sometimes I like to say that I grew up with a Jewish mom and a musician dad, and so I became a Jewish musician. Un Freeling trod a lichtig green, the bemer schwer mit Blumen. Un got a neyen a machine, Vanne in Weisse.
13: Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm sitting here with singer, songwriter, and klezmer musician Ada Hetko, originally from the Capital Region.
7: I started writing songs when I was tiny. I was around a lot of music constantly and also around songwriters. There's a wonderful um, Capital District uh, songwriter, Roseanne Ranieri, who my dad is is good friends with, and as a, as a toddler, I was around Roseanne and my dad practicing songs that my, that Roseanne wrote. And I remember very early thinking, "I want to be a songwriter when I grow up."
13: So, Adam, my first question: How would you describe klezmer music?
7: Klezmer music is party music for dancing that came from Eastern Europe and has been shaped by um, having a, a life in the United States also.
13: And the song that we just heard God has a new sewing machine, I believe is the English translation, is that an example of klezmer music?
7: Great question. So, I would I would call that Yiddish song more than klezmer music, but the the history of Yiddish song and and klezmer klezmer is generally considered to be like the the core repertoire of klezmer is generally instrumental music and Yiddish song usually has lyrics but there are also klezmer songs that have lyrics and there's a lot of klezmer instrumental style that's used in Yiddish song performance so there's a lot of overlap and there's also a lot of overlap with Yiddish folk song and um, synagogue music so there's there's a lot of interplay between all of these these different types of music. So
13: you now live in Boston and you also describe yourself as a Yiddish culture maker. Sounds very interesting. Can you tell us what that means?
7: Yeah, I do a lot of different things in the Yiddish cultural world. I've taught Yiddish language classes. I've supported Yiddish language programs in different ways. I teach Yiddish singing. I I um, teach Yiddish dance and do a lot of dance leading. I do Yiddish translation, so it's it's not um, it's not just that I plug in in one particular way as a singer songwriter, even though that's the the thing that I probably spend the most time at. Um, I'm I'm doing lots of different work in from different angles to support the Yiddish culture scene and help it grow. And part of that is is like. Making um, making connections between people, being mentored by people, mentoring people, um, getting people connected, and um, helping make the culture happen.
13: You know, last June, I don't know if you're familiar with Old Songs Music Festival, I was, uh, I was on the Contra dance floor, and, and a dance ended. And I found myself standing next to this young woman wearing a T-shirt, and it looked like It had Yiddish words on it, and I was so intrigued. You know, we started talking, and she told me about her involvement in Yiddish language classes, Klez Canada, uh, which I know you're familiar with. It's an organization that fosters Jewish cultural and artistic creativity. But I was so intrigued that a young person would have this connection and strong interest in Yiddish.
7: Yeah, I, a lot of young people are interested in Yiddish and it's not a new, a new thing. There's a joke in the Yiddish cultural scene that every five years, there's an article that comes out that says, oh, suddenly people are interested in Yiddish. Um, So it's not, (laughs) not at all a new thing. I think a lot of um, people of my generation and younger, I'm 32, and I've been involved in the Yiddish culture world for about 10 years. And I think a lot of people in their 20s and 30s um, are coming to Yiddish culture with a lot of curiosity and uh, a strong sense of um, of connection that doesn't have the the baggage of previous generations. Like we don't have the same sort of assimilationist pressures. We don't have um, the sense of shame that some people um, feel connected to Yiddish. Um, and the story that uh, is so commonly heard about um, people in their, their 70s and 80s and, and also sometimes their 60s saying, oh, my parents spoke Yiddish, but they didn't um, they didn't teach it to us. And they used it as a secret language when we weren't around. Like we don't have that that sort of baggage. So there's a certain amount of playfulness and freedom that we have that's really special. And there's also, because Yiddish isn't there are Yiddish institutions, but because Yiddish isn't institutionalized the same way that, that many other languages and cultures are, um, that also gives a certain amount of freedom to, to take ownership, to like learn all that you can and then take ownership of it and make something new.
13: Fascinating. What do you especially value uh, about Yiddish culture, music, the language? I know that's a big question.
7: One thing that I especially value is the particular relationships that I have within the the scene. That was really what kept me in it. Like I I came to my first Klezmer festival. I came to Klez Camp in 2013 and I didn't know anybody and I didn't know any Yiddish, And I didn't know any Yiddish songs. I really didn't. Okay, I knew Tumbala like <laughs> I was like, you know, just curious. And I was scooped up by some really lovely warm people. Um, like Jeff Warshower, who's a wonderful guitarist and singer. Um, and um, Ethel Rame, who's a fabulous, um, fabulous Balkan singer and Yiddish singer. Um, I was just sort of taken taken in by some really wonderful, really talented people, and that was really exciting. And I was also excited by the, the intellectual challenge of learning about a new culture, learning a new language and learning how to make art in that language. It's hard. So that's exciting.
13: <laughs> it, it doesn't get boring, it sounds.
7: Right. It feel it often feels like there's just another door opening and another door opening and another door opening because the language is an entire world. So there's so much to explore.
13: So going back to your song at the beginning of this piece, God Has a New Sewing Machine, what what actually is the Yiddish for that title? Got nay Machine. Is there a storyline, a message to the piece, or is it just a fun piece.
7: Ooh, that's a or both. That's a, or both. That's a juicy question. Is there a message? There's definitely a storyline because the first verse is describing there there it's a springtime and it's beautiful and there are flowers. And then the first the second verse is saying that it's it's dusty and boots are getting the thresholds all dusty. Um, and there's no rainbow because there's no rain and then this is the setup for the third verse the duck is happy and will get happier because there's going to be a rain rainbow because God has decided to sow rain so that's the that's the story in the song and I have to say one of the most joyous Moments of my songwriting career so far. My my partner is a choir director, among other things. And one of the community choirs that he directs um, is an intergenerational choir. It's mostly families, um, parents, and small children. And um, he wrote an arrangement of that song to be sung by the choir. And oh, it was so fun to watch the kids. They were very excited about singing the word schmutz. That was a big, that was a big draw for them. But it was very, it was very cute. It was very nice. Like, that's what I want to do with my songs. I want them to be, um, I want them to be something that people can can sing and, and love and take with them.
13: So fun and, you know, the rainbow comes out a joyful experience, uh, one of happiness, excitement, exhilaration. Exactly.
7: Yeah. And it's not that all of my songs are happy, but I find deep joy in being able to write Yiddish songs. And I want to share that joy with other people. And klezmer music, here, we're getting back to the connection between klezmer and Yiddish song. Klezmer music is party music. So there's a very deep joy in klezmer. And I think there's a a real purposefulness to to the joy in both Yiddish song and klezmer that we're, we're doing something serious with that joy. We're bringing communities together. We're doing something positive, building a positive Jewish identity. We're, um, we're doing real work.
0: Thanks to Marsha Lazarus for that interview and to singer-songwriter and Yiddish culture maker Ada Hetko. Um, their music can be found at adahhetko.net, Adahetko.net. And you can stay tuned for a future, a second part of this interview. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahickey.
1: And I'm her co-host, Bria Barthel. We want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Lavender, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Mark Dunley, Marshall Lazarus, and Hugh Johnson.
0: We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream sanctuary radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform.
1: And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.